0: I'm Al-Khemiheera, and thank you for listening to episode 13 of Subject to Power. I need to give a bit of a warning. There are some pretty rough parts ahead that may be hard to listen to for some. We're returning to the subject of porn, this time with activist, author, and founder of the organization Collective Shout, Melinda Tankard-Reist. As most of you are probably aware, the pornography that lives on today's internet is completely unrecognizable from the playboys of yesteryear. It's a different beast altogether. And Melinda and a few brave souls have been staring into this abyss for the last decade plus reporting on the destruction that this new breed of porn is causing to relationships, families, schools, communities, and our humanity. But not content with just reporting. Melinda and Collective Shout are also having incredible success going after predatory peddlers and their goods and services, both online and in real life. We talk about all of the above, the bravery needed for this type of activism, and a lot more. I know you've written on a lot of topics, kind of in the women's rights more broadly. And I just want you to briefly take us through like how you came to this this activism, this thinking that you find yourself in.
1: Well, I love talking about the history. I, I really do. Uh, I've been an activist since I was around 16 or 17. Started out actually with an interest in environmental issues. My first cause was Save the Whale. That affected me a lot. I wanted to join Greenpeace and blow up whaling ships. That was my goal in life, possibly still is. I haven't achieved that yet. (laughs) But then I started to, to write for the local newspaper. I grew up in a country town. I'm a farmer's daughter, eldest of, of four, and I love to write. I love words. I would always be reading books, reading the newspaper. And I started doing work experience on my local newspaper. And one of the first stories I ever wrote was on the opening of a local women's refuge. And this really opened my eyes to what was happening in my country town. I interviewed some survivors of violence. I interviewed the women who had founded this refuge. And I started to notice more around me. I noticed the treatment of Indigenous women, mistreatment. I noticed the mistreatment of women from ethnic and migrant backgrounds. I noticed a young woman in year 11 at my high school removed from school early to uh, for an early marriage. I noticed uh, women that were being verbally abused and no one intervened. So, yeah, I had my eyes opened and... Then I started to work yeah, full time as a journalist and got this scholarship that took me to California, uh, met more women's activists, more campaigners, and really felt that, you know, I love journalism. I loved mainstream reporting. I learned a lot from mainstream reporting about gathering facts and evidence and how to interview people, but really I had big opinions and was a bit of a loud mouth and So I moved more into opinion writing when I moved back to Australia from from the US and came across the work of Renata Klein. I was very interested in bioethics and the reproductive technology industry. And my first really entry into radical feminist thinking was reading the works of Renata Klein, uh, Jenna Correa, Robin Rowland on the reproductive industry and the use of women's bodies, IVF, surrogacy those practices. And then I had the pleasure of meeting Renata at a conference in Bangladesh. It was called the Camilla Conference. And it was a conference primarily made up of women from developing countries describing the violation of women's human rights in their countries and uh, what they were trying to do about it. And that just led me to really do more, try to do more for for women and girls at a, at a global level to build collaborations. I did some political advisories, some more writing, and then I set up a housing service for women who were pregnant and didn't have uh, support. Then uh, all of that led me to to setting up Collective Shout.
0: And can you tell us what is Collective Shout? Yeah,
1: well, I'd love to because I love talking about Collective Shout. So Collective Shout came about as a result of my third book called Getting Real, Challenging the sexualization of girls. Uh, that book brought together global authorities on the harms of objectifying and sexualizing girls, reducing girls to the sum of their bodies, the sum of their sexual parts, telling girls, really, you are worth nothing else. You have to be sexually appealing. You have to satisfy the male gaze. You have to be on display sexually. You have to have a hot body. Otherwise, you are irrelevant. One of the contributors to that book who uh, was a younger woman who wrote about her own personal battles with body image and coming to see that this was a, a harmful cultural influence on her to hate herself, despise herself so much was really a message from mainstream popular culture, advertising, marketing, teaching girls to despise themselves so they'll spend more money on products they don't really need. And she wrote to me after the book came out and said, your book is a collective shout against the portification of culture. And that phrase left out at me, collective shout, I thought I need an excuse to use it. People were writing to me after the book came out and said, we know what the research says, where's the movement against it? Where's the grassroots movement addressing the sexualization of girls? They wanted to be part of something. So I approached a couple of women I'd done some activism with previously. They were really interested. And then other women just came out of the woodwork at the same time. Eating disorder specialists who said, you know, we're tired of treating the end result of a toxic culture, Uh, women working in education, aid and development, mums at home with children seeing the toxic impact on their own children of these harmful messages. And so we all came together at the same time and launched this movement, and it's much bigger than we ever imagined, more victories than we ever imagined. It's gone global. We were so encouraged by the response to our work, you know, in the year 2021, we had 20 victories that year alone. This is a small team, like we're talking a really small number of women running this movement. We ran campaigns globally, including against child sex abuse dolls. We got 23 Chinese companies selling replica children, anatomically correct, lifelike, custom-made children, and replica body parts, replica babies and toddlers off Alibaba, the biggest global shopping platform in the world. So what we do is we help people to protest. We help them to see that they actually have a right and really a duty, I would say, to speak out, to complain, to protest. A lot of women tell us that we've made them brave. Before they thought, was there something wrong with them? Uh, Now they realise, actually, no, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not hung up. They're not prudish. They're concerned about society. What kind of world are we creating, especially for For children. So we have thousands of people involved now in Australia and globally running campaigns in local communities, uh, billboards, advertisers, marketers, any company exploiting the bodies of women and girls for profit, uh, we will go after them.
0: And is it primarily social media or is it physically in person or it's uh, economic boycotts or all of the above? It's all of the above, mostly social media. And this
1: is where, for all its faults and all the problems we have with big tech and social media, we have been able to harness that monolith for our cause. You know, in the old days, you'd write a letter, you'd go to the post office, you you have to buy stamps, you take the baby with you, the baby throws up over the envelope, you have to start again. You line up at the post office, you post your letter, and most likely never get a response. Now we get results. Our record was half an hour on Twitter. We get results very fast. Just this year, it's only the start of February, we have had multiple victories, including eight two nights ago, eight overnight, against Instagram for hosting sex doll accounts that sell child sex abuse dolls. We complained about 10, 8 gone overnight. That was our most recent victory. And social media, you know, seriously, they can't ignore us anymore. We tag them, we name them, we put their photos everywhere. You know, the CEOs, the heads of these companies. We got rid of three porn magazines in Australia, two of which were in Australia, published in Australia for 80 years, 80 years. What did we do? We went through them. We took photos, we captured images and we superimposed the heads of Bauer Media Group over those images. Seven weeks later, gone, gone forever. Really? After 80 years. Because we don't play nice. You know, these are civil rights harms against women and girls. Why should we be polite? We know what the global research says. We know how sick uh, porn is making people, uh, the harms to real women and to real girls from porn consumption, pornographic portrayals of women and girls. These magazines featured fantasies for teenage girls in uniforms. They were sold in the milk bars, 7 Elevens, corner stores at children's eye level, often out in the open, and we target these companies and say, you know, we actually just use their own mission and value statements against them. You say you care for the community. You say you care for vulnerable members of the community. You claim to care about women and girls. Here's what you are doing. You are encouraging fantasies for female tennis players during the women's tennis, for example, with upskirting images of women playing tennis, and yet you say you care about the status of women. We don't believe you. You're all hypocrites, and we will call you out for it. And that's how we, we get our victories.
0: That's how you roll. I love yeah. it. I'm doing a happy dance. I think that's exactly what's needed, and no, take no prisoners. I grew up with Playboys and Hustler magazine, all of this stuff permeating my m- once every view. And so you got rid of it for good, which is just... For
1: good. The CEO called me, called me into a meeting to his uh, plush offices in Sydney. And I had all my notes prepared. I had all my arguments prepared. You know, CEOs rarely ask me to meet with them. So this was a pretty rare opportunity. Usually they don't want to see me. And I sat down with him. And to my utter astonishment, he said, everything you're saying is true. I have a daughter. I realise that it's wrong for us to publish these magazines. He said, I've notified the German owners that we're not going to publish them anymore. All he asked for was he said, can you give me 12 weeks to relocate the staff into other parts of the company and we will not publish these magazines anymore. I almost fell over. That's, you know, (sighs) it's one of my favourite victories. We've had so many, but that one is high level, you know.
0: Can we set up a collective shout US? Please, I'm (laughs) on my way to New York, please. This is our goal: is to go
1: global, global expansion. Because you know there are no borders; it's a global village. That's right. I know okay. it's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah, uh, we would love to. Uh, we do have allies and collaborators in in the US, but uh, a lot of these groups uh, look to us and say, "How did how did you do that? How did you get rid of those porn makes? How did you get rid of those billboards? How did you get rid of those sexualized clothes for kids? How did you shut down all those Instagram accounts?" I think we've got some techniques and some strategies that can be applied in any country, but you've got to have some courage. You've got to have some bravery. You've got to be used to trolling. You've got to get used to not being loved and adored. And I think this is a a problem for women. You know, we're socialised to be polite and to not rock the boat and to be kind and to not make men especially feel uncomfortable. So you've got to be willing not to be universally loved and adored. And why wouldn't we want to Act, look at what we're doing, look at the destruction, especially of the sexuality of young people through the porn industry, the wreaking of havoc and destruction, the devastation of relationships, teaching toxic ideas about sexuality, reinforcing stereotypes that women are just pieces of meat to be used, that they should be submissive, that men should be controlling and dominant. This does not augur well for relationships, for relationships based on respect and mutuality, and uh, dare I say, love. Like we don't hear about that very often, because you know, <laughs> porn is is destroying this. Uh, yeah, that's no, true. relationships. relationships. Um, Robert Jensen talked about pornography is what the end of the world looks like, and you know, he's really onto something. We are in a death spiral. My colleagues and I use the word hellscape a lot. We have a uh, WhatsApp groups with different topics, and one of them is hellscape. And we put into hellscape things that we may not want to look at straight away. We may not want our colleagues to see straight away. So we just put it in the hellscape group for when you are up to looking at this because it is so vile and so evil that some days you just can't see anymore. And some of the child sex abuse materials, the infants, the babies, the replica body parts go into that hellscape file. Uh, Yeah, I believe we are in a death spiral.
0: It's hard to think otherwise. Uh, So let's talk about your new book, which is called He Chose Porn Over Me. And what is so extraordinary to me about this book is that you really have done this like granular, intimate reporting with women who are experiencing in their relationship, in their bedrooms, in their households, the fallout of being with a man who uses porn. I wanted to start with some general observations that I made from the book. One is just about every single woman says that they had a gut feeling that something was wrong. If you have any thoughts on that at all.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how the book came about and then address that. So I, I love collecting women's stories. I love personal narrative. I love collating, curating the accounts of women in their own words, that's something I've done with the majority of my books. is Is listening to women, women's lived experiences, as you said, that granular view. I like that word. And I felt that the time had come to hear from women themselves about how they were harmed by the porn industry. We we haven't heard much about that. We haven't heard about well what it's like for women in everyday you know relationships and i posted on my Facebook a story of a young woman, she was only 23, who had found out in the week of her impending wedding that her fiancé was a compulsive porn user and she hadn't been told and she called off the wedding and I just shared this story and all these women piled on and said, I wish I'd cancelled my wedding. I wish I'd known ahead of time. I wish I'd heard the phrase, don't date men who use porn. That really resonated, that, that hashtag, don't date men who use porn. I wish I'd listened to my gut instinct. I wish I knew what a red flag was, because in retrospect, they see all the red flags. As women, we're taught to deny that instinct. Uh, We're gaslit. You know, these women were just so up against it because not only had the porn industry groomed their partner into this overblown sense of entitlement, but everyone around them didn't think that porn was that bad and that really it was her, she needed to be more sexy, she needed to loosen up, she needed to maybe drink a bit more to loosen up a bit and recognise that she was prudish and hung up about sex. And so all of their instincts were smashed by societal grooming, by gaslighting, by therapists who blamed her and not him by even church leaders who sided with him over her. And the men were not held to account. Everything was on her. She had to save the marriage. She had to do everything she could to satisfy his every sexual urge. I mean, one woman in the book was providing sex once to twice, sometimes three or four times a day, including when she was pregnant, and he was still consuming porn. Women were providing everything he wanted. He was still using the sex industry, it didn't matter what she did. You know, submitting to being choked, strangled, providing anal sex, which she hated, uh, submitting to to rough sex, so-called rough sex, porn-style relating porn sex, it didn't matter. And the women were not allowed to trust their instincts, really. And it was often too, too late by the time they realised they should have.
0: The other thing that struck me was how often and how many of them Would finally had enough, left the relationship, started a new relationship with new hopes, only to discover that that new guy was also a porn user. That's right. That's
1: right. So for the women who had already been in a relationship with a porn-consuming, compulsive porn-using man, they would go into the new relationship begging, please tell me the truth, tell me the truth, please tell me, I can't do this again. One of the women who was one of the first to contact me actually, Catherine, told me that she begged Uh, the second man who was to become her husband, please, you have to tell me, I won't survive this a second time. I've suffered so much. My children have suffered so much. Please tell me. And he lied. I'm clear of it. I used to be a problem. It's not anymore. This man lied so much that he had actually, before I'd even talked to Catherine, he'd contacted me wanting to work with me in schools to help, you know, deal with the porn issue. It's quite the story. So I asked to speak. I asked if I can I just talk to your wife I just love to get a sense of how it is for her and and then I heard this whole story you know he'd also told me some things that were deeply disturbing and I thought his wife needs to know you know his wife needs to know some of these things about his alleged past anyway uh, she found that she ends up in this relationship with a man who is also a compulsive porn using man and the men keep it from them or they fool themselves that they've changed Or even in some of the um, Christian contexts, the church leaders would tell the man that a marriage would fix them, marriage would cure them. So she's expected to absorb this. She's expected to be the cure and to be the policewoman as well, to police the usage, to get the filtering, to
0: check in on him, to make sure he's okay. That seems like a double punishment, not only are you being subjected to everything that the porn does, but you also have to be, be the police and the accountability partner. And I mean, just so unfair. Everything, massive
1: responsibility on her. He's not expected to demonstrate true sorrow, true lament, true reform. These men continue to consume porn in the family home, even with children present. And still she's having to do all the work, line up the therapists, line up the accountability groups, get the accountability software, do all of the checking in. He didn't like the counsellor; She organised another one. Everything on her is just absolutely exhausting. And then to have to run the home, look after the kids because he's reneged on his own responsibilities, the family life is, becomes, you know, kind of boring for him. He is consumed by porn. He's titled to to get off whenever he wants, wherever he wants. You saw that in the book everywhere. (laughs) And she and her children become collateral damage because of his absolute unfettered entitlement to consume, to consume porn, even with all the pain that has been Cause to her, and I want to quote my friend and colleague Caroline Norma here. She emailed me with this observation after reading one of the first drafts. She says, It's actually quite an extraordinary contemporary phenomenon that men are so loyal to porn that they're prepared to have women leave them, that real women and children, households, future plans, etc., are nothing in the face of men's porn usage. They just end up meaning nothing because men actively and willingly choose porn regardless. So respect, connection, love, the bindings that keep a relationship intact, unravel because of his insatiable greed for porn. And they talk about the crushing of intimacy, sex that becomes deadening and mechanical, and really the uh, the sole destruction for them, the total cost to themselves of his decision to allow porn to colonize
0: their home and their, their union. Kind of says it all. Mm. Um, I wanted to jump back to, obviously, pornography has invaded all of our life and the culture it's reaching saturation points to where will this actually end up and so I just if you can talk about well
1: it's the end game all right and we're, we're seeing that right now we're seeing it right now in the rise of porn and domestic violence a few years ago I was a bit of a lone voice here and a handful of colleagues saying the same thing and those predictions have all come true And, you know, it gives us no pride to say we were right. I wish we'd been wrong, but we were warning about this. And here we are. We're in it right now. We're seeing rising rates of domestic violence linked to porn and porn-inspired acts. And I cannot give you any better evidence for that than a frontline domestic violence worker on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia, Diane McLeod, who I quote in the book. She wrote to me in 2018 and said this. In the past few years, we have had a huge increase in intimate partner rape of women from 14 to 80 plus. The biggest common denominator is consumption of porn by the offender, believing that women are up for it 24-7, ascribing to the myth that no means yes and yes means anal, oblivious to injuries caused and never, ever considering consent. We have seen a huge increase in deprivation of liberty, physical injuries, torture, drugging, filming and sharing footage without consent. That quote alone should be enough for lawmakers, policymakers, governments to to act on this. There is such a strong body of research now that porn is fueling violence. We're seeing it in younger relationships, girls in schools telling me things like, he went for my throat without even asking, expecting to ejaculate on her face on the first date. We're seeing it in girls being sexually harassed at school every day, even young girls in schools I go to in Australia tell me that boys send them dick pics on their phones, try to touch them, try to grope them. Schools I went to last year, the worst stories I've ever heard in more than 20 years of public speaking, girls telling me that boys sexually groan and moan at them every day at school, in the class, in the schoolyard, at the school camp, on the school bus. Young girls crying as they're telling me what it's like to be subjected to sexually grunting noises, boys doing pelvic thrusting, boys doing oral sex gestures, boys doing masturbation gestures. In every school, public, private, faith-based, secular, high socioeconomic, low socioeconomic, ethnicity doesn't matter. The stories are the same everywhere we go. Boys offering girls $100 notes to make porn films for them and their mates, $100 cash notes at school. Uh, This is where we are up to. We have really corrupted a generation and it's our fault. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. But we've allowed children to be exposed to porn. There were two things I saw last week that just put me in such a spiral of despair. I almost thought, is it too late? One of those things was a TikTok trend where uh, I saw a video that a boy had made where he was fantasizing about... Imagine being the last boy in the room still standing after all of your female classmates have been shot in a school shooter incident in somewhere in the US. So it's a fantasy. You're the only man left. All the girls are dead. What would you do? And the comments. Would you prefer the girls hot or cold? I like the body still to be warm. I like the body still to be cold. Can I give you a better example of the death of empathy? The death of Empathy. Where's the sorrow? Where's the concern? Why would you make a video like that and then all these boys pile on and all these men pile on to live out that fantasy of what they would do if they had the chance, right? And they're not even ashamed. It's all out there. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the war in Ukraine started and the most popular trending term on Pornhub and other porn dispensers was search terms for Ukrainian girl. Men on Reddit threads were requesting live rape footage of women and girls in the Ukraine. This does not all go well for civilization, just saying. Look how we're molding and shaping and socializing young men, that you have a right to enjoy this. You're allowed to get off on this. You are allowed to enjoy the eroticization of female suffering on a global scale. Like what kind of man wants to do to do that? And, and how do we, you know, you ask where this takes us. This is where it's taken us. Like the evidence is there exhibit A all around us for, for where we are at right now.
0: And to think that porn is about sex is a completely... So it's really it's about torture
1: sex. and what women can endure. This yeah. whole idea that this is, you know, we can teach people, young people, love making... <laughs> You know, the most popular genres of porn are the most violent. That's what the evidence tells us. The most popular genres are the most violent, and they have to be because the consumer gets immune to the earlier content and needs harder content to get off. So this is what we are showing, boys especially, is just hardcore torture, rape, incest, sadism, BDSM, torture. What can a woman endure? They want to see the crying. They want to see the tears. They want to see the choking, the spluttering, the gagging. They want to see the anal tearing of women. That's what they want to see. That's not sex.
0: (laughs) You have a quote by a woman in your book that said, I had no idea of the level of hate towards women in pornography that it was so rife with so much abuse and degradation. And I was in a relationship with someone who was able to orgasm from that kind of abuse and hatred. And so that's what the experience is from a woman's point of view. You think you're married to a a guy.
1: (laughs) They're shocked when they discover what their partner has been consuming and getting off on. Uh, They're all profound stories. They really are. But there was a a woman uh, in the book who... She basically discovered that uh, her husband who lectured on colonialism and you know the abuse of people in Asian countries and all of this was actually consuming sexual content made of young Asian girls and they were this was their specialty was colonization and the mistreatment and abuse and violation of the rights of Asian people by colonizers and here he was consuming the same content that looked like, she said it looked like the The girls looked exactly like his students that he was lecturing on about colonisation. A younger woman in the Netherlands, she said, after discovering that violent graphic hardcore sex movies are not just a niche thing but a seemingly normal thing almost every man who has internet access indulges in, I cannot trust any man anymore. I cannot take men seriously anymore. It's a shock to them when they realise what these men are into. And often these are so-called family men, married, kids at home, good reputations in the community and they're consuming this hardcore graphic abusive torture porn. It's a shock, it's a cognitive dissonance for for the women to discover that about their partners and how is it that the man that I thought I loved, that I've committed my life to, can enjoy this kind of material. Especially mums with children at home discovering that their partners were consuming child sexual exploitation material One of the women in the book who had four children had exited a violent relationship, entered a new relationship. I was pregnant to this new man, discovered hard drives and USBs full of child sexual exploitation material. She collapsed, she was vomiting, she went into a state of shock.
0: You have another woman, Carla, who says, as long as porn exists, we don't stand a chance of creating a fair and equal world. And there is so much to that because if you condition men to have this kind of lack of empathy, what are we left with? How are we going to negotiate anything? They've been taught
1: to eroticize, to be aroused by misogyny and violence. If that's their first sexual experience uh, as a boy going through puberty If that's his first sexual experience, that is going to lead him to continue down that path. He's going to continue to seek those kind of experiences. How would a young woman be treated in this situation? She's not going to be treated well. I find myself saying to women, you know, just don't tolerate porn using men, don't date men who use porn, it will not go well for you, you will lead a half-life, you will become a shell of yourself, you will not recognize yourself, it will suck the life and the pleasure of living out of you and don't think you can change him, he can change on his own if he wants to, if he is serious, he can change on his own, very well, thank you. But unfortunately, the men are continually enabled because they know the women won't leave or it's too hard to leave financially, housing crisis, housing shortages, trying to raise small children on your own. You don't have extended family that are willing to help you or the rest of the family is saying it's your fault. You can't leave him. So he often knows he's got her, you know. And he's able to maintain this facade of a happy family life to the complete and utter suffering of of herself, self-denial, self-abnegation. So I urge women, I try to help them to see that they are better off on their own. Yeah. You might be better off on your own. That can sound harsh and callous to someone who wants to be partnered, but look at the alternative and set your standards. Decide ahead of time. Because these men can present as very charming, they're very clever, they can be very manipulative, and a lot of women get fooled. What do you want for yourself? What are your boundaries? What are your values? Is this the kind of relationship you want to bring children into? Is this man going to be able to model healthy masculinity? Is he going to be a good and loving, caring father? How can he have those qualities if he's able to be aroused by the extreme torture and brutalization of women and girls? How do these go together, you know? Ask the question straight away. First question should be the first question. And I've got girlfriends that do that, younger girlfriends that do that. Do you consume porn? First question, first date.
0: I think it's so important to create these standards. Uh, You have one woman, Lucy, who said, he told me that if I agreed to have sex with him every two to three days, he would not be drawn to porn I felt creeped out and now blackmailed into sex to keep a stable home for me and my children. I saw myself basically as a prostitute. And so that's the bargain. That can so easily become the bargain.
1: To be a personal prostituted woman in his own home, it was interesting how many women said they felt like a living sex doll. Uh, they've got to meet his every demand, his every need, that's the blackmail. For keeping the relationship together. What kind of relationship is this? This is not flourishing. This is not equal. It's not mutual. It's her having to meet his sexual demands to keep him in the marriage. Again, this is not going to be a happy, loving, caring relationship. This is not a good man run for your life.
0: Yes, and just don't run into the arms of another one of them. (laughs) And so one thing I noted was that a lot of women described this kind of like blank affect that their male partners get where they're just bored. And one woman says, I cannot forget the look of complete boredom on his face when being intimate. That paints such a picture to me. Well, real women
1: can't compete with what's on offer thanks to the uh, global misogyny, industrial porn complex, uh, dispensing anything, catering for every fantasy or creating new fantasies in men. And how can she compete with that variety of experience, that variety of offering. Real women cannot compete with that. And we're seeing this in the move to AI and girlfriend bots, girlfriend AI chat bots. It's presented as, you know, this is the girlfriend who does everything you want. She will send you not say for work pictures anytime. She will you know, talk dirty to you. She will never talk back. She will never complain. She will never ask for anything. She will make no demands of you. It's the same as the global sex doll industry. This is how it's presented to men. And even our mainstream media here in Australia, this is a trade short for tradesmen is in a relationship, a loving, intimate relationship with his sex doll, Karina. And it has quotes like, I used to be learning and now I'm not, you know, presents this narrative that men deserve this. Men should get this what they want and they don't want difficult women you know and it's presented as you know she's so much fun and she I can take her in the car with me and we go to the park and we have meals together and I love to dress her up and then she's posed you know in the kitchen doing the cooking hanging out the laundry and they come with multiple heads that you can you know mix and match and swap and different clothes and so go back to your original question real women are just seen as as too much hard work because they have needs you know god forbid and they want things and they want conversation and they want to be cared for and, and loved on a very deep level. And men don't want to do that too much hard work. It's boring. It's hard work. You know, you've actually got to address another person's needs. You've got to be caring and empathetic. Uh, why would you do that when you can just get off multiple times a day to multiple kinds of women, women of different races and different ages, every iteration of I was going to say human sexuality, but I don't even think it's human. It's subhuman. <laughs> it's catered for.
0: So who wants a relationship with a real girl, a real woman? And in particular, if that real woman has issues with your misogyny. That's exactly right. I just saw something on Twitter that relates to this. I'll try to
1: bring it up quickly. This is, you know, something else for the Hellscape file. This is a. <laughs> This is a meme going around. It shows a man hugging a pregnant woman from behind with his hands, you know, almost across her breasts. And the man says, women, you'll never be more empowered than when you're taken, loved, bred and given the privilege to help raise the next generation of righteous patriarchists. You know, these are the kind of memes going around that misogyny is valid, that women need to be put in their place, these uppity women, all the harms feminism has done to to men and and male entitlement. And these men, you know, the incel movement punishing women because they know what women wants to date them. Well, there might be a reason for that, son. You might want to look into that. Just entitlement on steroids, and this is causing real harm to real women and to real girls every minute of every day in every country of the
0: world. In your book as well, there were many women who had tried with guys they really wanted to make it work with and knew about the porn and that it was out in the open, but discovered that so much damage had been done that he couldn't repair or that they couldn't repair.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, one of the stories you're referring to there, I think, is uh, by Sharni. And she was in a relationship with a man she loved. She did love this man. But what he expected of her and required of her for her to stay in that relationship was just too much. Socialised and groomed by the broader culture from the moment that they're born. It's very hard to counter that. How do you counter that? You know, we're up against a multi-billion dollar porn industry that is deliberately dropping porn bots into the feeds of boys. You know, we talk about accidental exposure, but so much of it is is a deliberate business model to groom the next generation of porn consumers. That's what the porn industry needs to do. What hope do these boys have?
0: Yeah, like the level of consciousness you have to have as either a parent of a boy or a boy to, like, opt out of that. How do you opt out
1: of it? It's very difficult to opt out of it, to stand outside the pack. You get shamed, you get called terrible names, you get humiliated, you get threatened, Boys, good boys tell us in schools, you know, the price they pay not to engage in the locker room talk, the so-called banter, the threatening girls with rape if they don't send pictures, uh, the sending of dick pics, the touching and groping, the rubbing up against girls at school, the sexual choking, the sexual moaning, all of those behaviours, the boys that don't want to participate pay a very high price. We need to do more to shore those boys up to help them see they are young men of integrity acting according to their values and that they don't have to buy in to uh, those toxic expressions of masculinity. Uh, what we'd like to see is a global counter-response, affirming good men, good boys. You know, you don't have to do this to be a male and to make it more of a popular thing, to be countercultural, to make it a countercultural movement. You know, like the work of Jackson Katz and uh, Robert Jensen, Some of the the newer young groups working with young men who want to resist porn culture, who are speaking out against it, you know, they're signs of hope. I hope they will succeed. But we need more men taking responsibility for this because the women are freaking exhausted. Like we're exhausted by this. We don't want to have to fight this every day. It's horrible. You know, there's a huge soul cost to this work. We're staring into the abyss every day, day after day, some of us for years it would be great to have more men recognising, look, you've got a stake in this too. If you care about the world, if you care about what it's going to be like when you have your own kids, if you care about women, you know, we want this to be a response based on empathy, not just your penis will fall off, you have premature ejaculation, because we are seeing now a rise in erectile dysfunction in teenage boys, never seen in history. And now we're seeing it. But I actually don't want that to be Yes, I know you, sometimes you've got to appeal to self-interest, but I actually want them to see and recognise, oh, maybe I don't want to be that kind of guy. I, maybe I don't want to be a patron of the global sex industry, which traffics women into prostitution, but also into the production of pornography, and that every click, every download is fueling that global industry. I, I want them to act on the basis of humanity and empathy, you know, call me crazy, not just self-interest, I won't be able to get an erection anymore
0: make it trendy to like treat girls with respect and respect girls autonomy and yes yeah that's
1: right we encourage young women also to recognize the boys that are trying cuz often they are lonely uh, i'm not saying you know pin a medal on their chest for showing basic human decency however they do pay a price and i think we it's fair to acknowledge that and help them to be, help them to stay good, and not to get consumed and sucked down into this black hole of, of misogyny and sort of chest thumping
0: entitlement. Another aspect of porn use is the um, personality disorder disordering that's uh, that's happening and we touched a little bit about it before just the narcissism of it all it just turns into like a man's relationship with his penis and that's kind of it this is your only
1: relationship in the world is with your penis really is that is that going to fulfill you forever with your trousers down and lube in one hand and your penis in the other really this is what life is for you now that's the kind of life you want some of the boys we speak to, some of the men we speak to, have been consuming porn since they were nine or 10, and they're now in their mid 30s. In fact, if I can commend to your listeners a profound piece on the Collective Shout website by a man we call James Evans uh, on why we need to de radicalize boys from porn. And he writes of the descent into hell of first being exposed to porn at 10 or 11. He's now in his mid 30s. He stopped consuming, but he had to take radical and severe action to be able to stop consuming. And his is the most profound piece written by a man about what porn did to him, to his personality, to his time, to the ending of life-giving activities just in the interest of getting the next porn hit. That was his whole life, getting the next porn hit. Really, is that a life you want, men? Is this a life you want? Because that's that's what the porn industry wants for you. Do you want to give yourself over to that? Really? What's La- wrong with some self-control and self-mastery and finding a dopamine hit somewhere else?
0: I mean, lab rat comes to mind. Yes,
1: absolutely. They are experimental guinea pigs in this giant experiment, and we're seeing the results of that.
0: And so I know there is some controversy between people who want to have it be termed addiction and those who who don't, where do you stand in that and why?
1: Yeah, well, I'm somewhere in between. So I'm reluctant to use the word addiction because too often it's used an excuse. And women in the book helped me to see this. They said their partners loved that it was called an addiction. They particularly loved when they were called love addicts and they joined Love Addicts Anonymous groups. This is not love addiction, it's the opposite. And she said it served them to say, I'm an addict in the same way as an alcoholic is an alcoholic or drug addict. The women said it gave the man an excuse not to actually take responsibility. I can't help myself. I have no choice. I don't like to use the word addiction. I tend to use compulsive or habitual behaviors or problematic sexual behaviors. However, I think the distinction that I make is to say, well, are they still willing to change? Are they willing to throw everything at this? You know, for that guy in the UK, he smashed his phone. He went offline. He meets weekly with an accountability group, face-to-face, eyeballing them. He has all the accountability software, but he took radical action to save his relationship after decades of use. So I think that's where you've got to look at, well, where does the, the rubber hit the road here? Are you going to paint yourself as a helpless addict that has zero control or are you going to do everything you can to make the best choices, to redeem what you have done, to become a new person? I mean, that's what life's about, isn't it? It's a sort of a quest to better ourselves, to become better people, better human beings, make a better civilization, a better world. So I, I tend not to use the word addiction. Having said that, I will acknowledge that in some cases, yes, it does seem to be a full-blown addiction, you can still take steps. You can still take steps. Bit of a nuanced answer. Not everyone's going to be satisfied with that, but that's where I'm finding myself at the moment.
0: It makes sense to me, like some of your women describe men who use porn for like eight hours a day, like literally (laughs) will injure their bodies. Injured their
1: bodies. They get RSI in their arms for God's sake. From constant masturbation, they get blisters on their penis. Wouldn't you think that would put you off? But no, the skin starts falling off their penises. Is this too much? Does this air at breakfast time over your way, Elle? I can't remember the time (laughs) difference. Right? Some men think that women want really ginormous penises, and so some young boys are stretching their penises. Nurses tell us that boys are coming in with injuries because they've tried to stretch their penises Really? Like, how's this working out for you, lads? (laughs)
0: Uh, um, You do talk about the kind of moral erosion that happens, if you want to talk about that. Yeah,
1: well, there is definitely an erosion of humanity, erosion of all the things that make us human, I think. Robert Jensen puts this quite beautifully, I quote him at the end of the book, talking about how we want men who value intimacy, connection, mutuality, empathy and compassion in the emotions that make stable, decent human communities possible. And I do fear that has the erosion, is it already too far advanced? Because we're seeing evidence of, of that, the erosion of what we need for civil society, just for societal functioning, some days I do fear, is it, is it too late? But I can't allow myself to think that. Every time I'm in a school, young people say this message changed their lives. Uh, girls write to me and say, I've decided to act according to my values, my boundaries. One of the most common response I get from girls is I have a right to say no and not feel bad about it, as if this is some giant revelation. But again, it shows us that we are out ground zero, that it would be a revelation to learn, oh, I'm actually allowed to say no and act according to what I want. Like I have really young girls ask me how do I say no without hurting his feelings. We talk about girl empowerment, girl power, give me a break. This is a disempowered generation of girls if they have to ask me how to say no. I don't want to hurt his feelings. They'll gossip about me. Well, you're going to get gossiped about anyway. You're going to get called, you know, a slut whether you say yes or no, so, you know. that's how it is, but why not act in a way that uh, you won't regret, that you will act according to what you know is best for you. So it's that feedback that actually gets me out of bed every day. Boys saying they've stopped using porn, they're going to get their dopamine somewhere else. Boys saying that they've stopped following Andrew Tate, that's a great outcome. They're looking for good, healthy role models to help them to be better men and to the kind of men that would be appealing to, to women.
0: Yeah. I thought our generation broke new ground when it came to establishing equal relationships and it feels like we've rolled it all back.
1: I believe it has rolled
0: back. I believe what
1: happened was that the movement for empowerment, the movement for for liberation, the movement for the rights of women was overtaken by the sex industry, marketed as sex positivity, where women are expected to offer up and be subjected to every degrading, debasing practice that we have invented, and then that's wrapped up as liberating. Pole dancing, providing oral sex in the back of the car at the at the end of a date because he was so kind to give you a ride home. I've had girls say this. I thought I owed him something because he was nice to me. You know, not an actual kiss because that would be too intimate. But you know, just oral, or just anal because I don't want to get too intimate yet. That's another story. Uh, wow. So I don't even remember the original question. I'm sure it was great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, Tell no, me what it was, Elle. That whole thing of like, where did this go wrong? I thought we were headed in the right direction and it's so regressed.
1: The sex industry took over the movement for women's authentic empowerment and they've won. We don't have billions of dollars to throw at this. They do. They've, yeah. they've won. They've succeeded in telling even young girls that empowerment is putting yourself on display, making sexy TikTok videos that men will like and that is your validation. You know, these girls, they get really sad. Their mental health goes down if they don't get enough likes for their sexy TikTok videos and these are young girls. And then we wonder about the epidemic of self-harm, which has gone through the roof since girls were given smartphones in 2009. 189% increase in self-harm in the 10 to 14-year-old age bracket reported by the Journal of the American Medical Association, 190% increase in deliberate self-harm. We've made girls sick. And, you know, we are briefing the results of this with rise in depression, anxiety, self-harm, self-hatred. There's a reason girls don't want to be girls. Why would you want to be a girl in this culture? Look at what happens to you. Yeah. Don't want to exit out of girlhood.
0: Yeah. No wonder. No wonder. This is not a mystery. I actually just saw a TikTok video of somebody who was calling this out, where essentially a pair of parents had an Instagram account for their prepubescent girl. And I mean, you don't want to say it, but kind of pimping her out. And this person who called it out went through the comment section, and every single commenter are men in their 50s, 60s, whatever. So uh, we've been
1: calling out Instagram on this for for quite a while now. Instagram is a predator's playground, facilitating and enabling these men to follow the accounts of underage girls, to put sexual emoticons all over those accounts, to invite the girls to talk to them privately. Uh, We have filmed girls in school uniforms here in Australia doing live chats When you do a live chat, anyone can join. Men join and they're naked and masturbating in front of the Australian schoolgirls. We've filmed that and reported it. Uh, My colleague Lynn Swanson-Kennedy is known as our resident predator hunter. She's all over these accounts. She has documented them. She's reported them to Instagram. Instagram is often very slow to remove them. And what Instagram has done is facilitate these men to enact their fantasies on these girls to comment on their bodies, to request the girls to do more sexy moves. Often these accounts are run by parents, which is deeply and profoundly affecting, often monetarized, uh, They're given gifts. Their, you know, brands contact them and get them to pose in very sexual ways to promote their clothing. And Instagram has allowed this to happen and yet says that it cares about child protection. Are you giving me a break? So we have confronted Meta, the parent company, which owns Facebook and Instagram, with all the evidence we continue to collect on the fact that Instagram is enabling these predators to engage with the girls, to follow their accounts, to contact them. Also what they do is they capture the accounts of these girls, their images, and they share them on online galleries for men that are fans, in inverted commas, of these girls. They compare notes, they say what they like about this girl, what they like about this girl. And it's happening out in the open, right? This is not behaviour that's happening at the darkest reaches of the dark web. This is all mainstream. Uh, also, we're seeing it in the what's known as live distant child abuse, where the big tech companies are facilitating, the ISPs and the telcos are facilitating live, distant child abuse. So this is where men, uh, Australia is in the top three of abusing nations, where men, Australian men, will commission the live abuse of a child, primarily in the Philippines, for him and his friends to enjoy. And the poor Filipino families offer their children for this and there's often uh, you know middlemen and brokers that arrange this. This is a huge industry where the men enjoy seeing a child being raped live. And these industries go on, facilitated by big tech companies and by our uh, telecommunication companies that are are profiting from the live torture, what I've called in a piece I wrote about this for the ABC, pay-per-view torture of children. So big tech companies are implicated. We've allowed men to do this. There's not enough penalties. There's not enough jail time to stamp it out. Australia is trying to do more about this. We have a dedicated Australian-centred account of child exploitation uh, that works very closely with the federal police and, and other agencies to try to stop this. But, you know, it is just a massive industry and very, very, very profitable. It's a child abuse disaster. It's child abuse on a global scale probably never never seen before. And it's too e- it's just too easy.
0: So, I mean, clearly girls need protection that they're currently not receiving. And I know you spend a lot of time going out to school and talking to them. And as you're talking, I'm feeling like really the only way to stop this is to instill them with some kind of internal protection. How do you do that? We need to do that.
1: But there needs to be some other things going on in parallel because it's too hard for girls on their own, as you are for parents on our own as well. So, yes, we encourage girls, stand up for yourself, act according to your boundaries, act according to your values. You're allowed to say no. You don't have to provide porn-style sex. You don't have to provide the porn star experience. You don't have to agree to consume, to look at porn with a partner that wants you to do that. Uh, you're allowed to say no. So encouraging girls to value themselves, their self-respect, self-worth, Oddly integrity. At the same time, though, we need boys to value the girls. And also, we need policy changes to at least provide an obstacle in the way of children consuming porn at increasingly younger ages. So, we're part of a global campaign to get proof of age protections for children so that they can't just enter rape and torture, incest, bestiality sites at the click of a button. So, we are trying to get our government to roll out a system of age verification so a third party a provider provides a digital passport looking at your identity proof of age and giving you a passport to use online it's not ideal it's really not ideal but let's try something at least find common ground about protecting children but of course the sex industry the porn industry wants no regulation nothing that would stop them making money and unfortunately the U.S. with its you know extreme free speech protections. why Why should this speech be protected? This is speech that is torturing and raping real women for the erotic enjoyment primarily of men. Why does that deserve free speech protection? So our Australian government has assigned our e-safety commission to come up with a plan, a roadmap for proof of age protections, but it's being delayed, and we are considered equal stakeholders we've been on roundtables with sex industry representatives who are given equal airtime, quoted at length on why this would be repressive and a backward move. To just protect kids from being exposed to rape and torture porn is seen as regressive and unenlightened. This is what we're up against. We're afraid they may win because they're very powerful, very powerful industry and lobby here in Australia.
0: That line of thinking and the freedom argument, when are we going to start thinking of what we want, the kind of world we want, and to actively create that instead of just have this fixation with quote unquote f- individual rights? An autonomy
1: to do whatever the hell you want and we will protect you. It's a misguided view of, of freedom, isn't it? What kind of civilization do we want? Is is allowing torture, sadism, rape porn, is that taking us towards the kind of enlightened society and civilization that we want and, and need? Is this serving the well-being of the community or is it serving the vested interests of pornographers who stand to continue to make billions of dollars off the bodies of women and girls primarily? How is this serving us as a society? When are we going to say that's enough now? If you've had your way too long, let's at least put in some basic protections as a start. I mean, some encouraging signs. We, we need to find some encouraging signs. Pornhub was brought to account. MindGeek, the parent company in Canada, hauled before the Canadian Parliament's Ethics Committee to account for rape videos, non-consensual image sharing, you know, child sexual exploitation material, child trafficking to produce porn. You know, that's a new development MindGeek executives resigning. Civil actions now. Women running civil actions about the harm done to them. Are suing the porn industry, you know, for the first time. This hasn't been seen before. That does give us some hope and we've been working with our global partners on that. We've been working with our global partners to get the credit card companies to stop facilitating and processing porn payments. So that's hopeful. Uh, some other initiatives, around sex dolls and some of the cooperation we're getting to at least start with child sex abuse dolls. So I have to look to those things and think, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't give up just yet. The future is at stake. Maybe we're we're not in
0: hellscape just yet.
1: I think we're teetering on the brink. We're teetering on the brink and we could go either way, but we need to find some collaborations Good people that want something better for us all, to try to shift this to try to to try to change it on a on a global scale. if we are going to have a half decent world and a half decent community, a life that is enjoyable and good and serves the best interests of everyone, but especially the most the most vulnerable if you want to join collective shout, you know, get with this movement, collective shout.org is our website. You can sign up online. It's free to join. We're on all of the social media platforms, even TikTok where we've been dragged kicking and screaming just recently because we want to reach that audience as well. We invite your listeners to be part of this expanding movement to uh, fight for what we all want, to fight for a world free of sex exploitation. That's our tagline we need you. We can all make a difference together with that collective voice. That's the aim of Collective Shout is the collective voice. It's too hard as individuals, but we can join together and hopefully bring about cultural change and societal transformation for the good of us all. I'll be signing up. El, we would love
0: to have you. Great. Thank you so much for talking to me about all of this.
1: Thank you so much, Elle. Well, talking to to good women like you is very helpful to have this extended interview, a long chance, which is very rare, a longer chance to unpack the issue at length.
0: Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to power is written, hosted and produced by me El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheesley at abridged Audio, cover art by B Johnson, and music by Beware of Darkness.